You're listening to the Memphis MedCast, a podcast series from Memphis Medical Society. Find out more about our mission and services at mdmemphis.org. Hey, Memphis MedCast listeners. This is an audio recording of a recent Zoom meeting we did with Dr. Manoj Jain, infectious disease specialist and local COVID-19 expert here in Memphis. Uh, You can find more information about this, including the PowerPoint slides and an FAQ page at mdmemphis.org. If you have more questions, feel free to email us anytime at info at mdmemphis.org. Thanks for listening and stay safe out there. Uh, This is Clint Cummins, CEO of the Memphis Medical Society. Uh, This is the, I guess, third now um, in a series of uh, COVID-19 related Zoom meetings. I'm happy to have everyone on. Uh, we'll be focusing tonight on uh, preparing for the surge and talking a little bit about uh, hopefully how we can all work together to um, uh, move forward with our uh, COVID planning as a community. Um, as I said in the beginning, if you have questions, please try to text them through the chat feature uh, on Zoom, or if you're only on audio, you may text me at 901-356-7703. Um, and uh, we will we'll kind of play it by ear, Dr. Jane, about opening it up for live questions at the end. We'll kind of see how it goes and how many people um, actually join. Um, uh, with us on the call tonight, in addition uh, to Dr. Manoj Jane, infectious disease uh, physician here locally, uh, we have um, Dr. Elisa Househalter uh, from the Shelby County Health Department, Dr. Bruce Randolph from the Shelby County Health Department, uh, Dr. Joe Holly, our local um, EMS director, and uh, a host of other folks I'm sure that might be able to answer um, some specific questions. Um, First, uh, I want to open it up. Um, Dr. Randolph, if you are with us, I wanted to see if there was any comments um, that the health department wanted to make. I am uh, searching for you, Dr. Randolph, but I don't see you. Um, One second. Ah, there he is. Dr. Randolph, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Go ahead, sir. Good evening to everyone. Uh, Simply want to uh, just inform you if you're not already aware that today at the press conference, we announced that I have issued a health directive requiring all non-essential businesses and establishments to cease operation effective tonight at 12 midnight. This includes um, churches, places of worship, recreational facilities, gyms, um, barbershops, as well as salons, beauty shops, and other establishments. And that we will be monitoring these very closely. And also we place emphasis on making even the uh, exempt uh, essential 
businesses realize that they have a responsibility to making sure that their patrons and employees are safe and that they provide the appropriate protection for employees uh, when uh, needed. And that they too will be monitored and the health department will close facilities that do not adhere to this uh, directive. That's the main thing that I want to highlight. Um, secondly, is that we are in the process of exploring the feasibility and possibility of uh, setting up some testing sites. We feel that there's a need to do more testing and that we need to either partner with some other organizations or establish some mobile unit or something to make sure that uh, other parts of the county are represented in our testing so we have a better picture of what we're dealing with. With that, I'll turn it back over to the chairperson. Um, we've had a few more people join Dr. Jane since some of these uh, Kinks got worked out. So I just want to reannounce we have Dr. Manoj Jane uh, presenting once again today. Uh, we have representatives from the health department and the city of Memphis on the phone. Uh, if you have questions, please send them through the Zoom chat feature. Uh, or if you're on audio only, you may text me at 901 356 7703. Dr. Jane, it's all yours. Okay, welcome. Clint, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, well, welcome everyone and thank you for taking time. I guess it's Friday evening and you have no choice but to be at home. Uh, I guess, uh, so this is probably not a bad way of spending an evening trying to learn what is happening uh, with COVID-19 and what is happening in our city. Uh, and I wanna really thank the Medical Society for the wonderful job they've been doing convening uh, it just saves so much time and effort. Uh, we have a whole team that's working uh, at the, uh, the task force. We'll tell you a little bit about that. And also with me uh, is Dr. Alisa uh, Househalter, who's the, uh, from the Shelby County uh, 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 Health Department. And uh, she'll be also making some remarks. And also with us uh, is uh, Doug McGowan, He's a COO at the city, and he's been leading the task force, and he'll give us a real insight of many of the conversations that he has been having uh, with the CEOs. So I wanna take about 15 minutes uh, of our time this morning, this evening, and talk about uh, the most imminent uh, uh, issue that's in front of us, which is the surge. And specifically, I wanna talk about what is a surge? Uh, why is it occurring? Our capacity, some modeling, and how to prevent in ways, and how to prepare as well. And we'll hear from Doug McGowan uh, from uh, more of that. So let me go back to the most basic thing. How did we get here? Uh, what this predicament that we're in? And the answer is very simple. We're dealing with a virus which is more infectious than the flu. Uh, you may remember, we've seen this slide before, we have a better idea now. It is two to three times more infectious than the seasonal flu. 
So we are dealing with something which we are not usually uh, familiar with and how quickly it can spread. You know measles, but it's not as bad as measles in spreading. The other part is the mortality rate is significantly higher than the flu as well. If you look, the mortality rate between uh, for the flu is less than 0.1%, maybe 0.05%. The mortality rate for COVID-19 is between 0.5 to 1%, which is five to 10 times greater than the flu. And as a society, as a group of uh, providers as well, this is not acceptable. What we need to do is everything in our power to not allow that mortality rate uh, to inflict upon uh, the population. And there are ways that we can prevent that. Uh, so uh, the other uh, uh, issue with uh, COVID-19 is that it can be transmitted through aerosols and surfaces on plastics for three hours, stainless steel for two hours, cardboard for an hour. And it's also, when it's aerosolized, it can be still in the air for about three hours. And so all of that creates a huge dilemma for us as we try to work to manage and contain this virus. I wanna take uh, you through what a timeline uh, of a non-complicated patient looks like and point out some salient features. Suppose if you or I were to get exposed uh, to someone, maybe in the community or maybe in the hospital, about five days on average, we would begin to have symptoms, maybe of a fever, cough, shortness of breath. Couple of days go by before we, once we get tested, the test results comes back in another couple of days. Then the health department is notified from the hospital the following day. And then the health department begins contact tracing and contacting folks. Two or three days go by. And then we're uh, essentially, if the fever goes away and for three days, we are no longer infectious. The real concern obviously, as you know, is that we are contagious for at least two days or more before we develop symptoms all the way uh, until about uh, three days after we have the fever. So this gives you a timeline of thinking about what the COVID-19 virus does in a non-complicated situation. However, in a complicated situation where one is admitted to the hospital, what we see is that by five days, the patient is uh, beginning to show symptoms after exposure, then admitted to the hospital. This is from a Lancet article uh, by the 12th day. And what's really uh, at one end, uh, just so uh, awe-provoking is how quickly these patients get sick. Uh, it's a cytokine surge, which is likely happening uh, within ARDS. That in the morning, they'll be on the floor, afternoon, evening, and going to the ICU. By the evening, they are intubated uh, in the ICU and, uh, and very difficult, not all old patients, but also young patients. So this is sort of the course of events. What I really wanna also show uh, you is the following. By the time they're showing their symptoms, it's a two week lag of when they were infected. So the course of infections that we're seeing today, there 
in exposure occurred two weeks ago. And that's what causes the complication in people not realizing that their behavior can have such adverse consequences. And that's in part why the surge occurs. Uh, so what is the surge? This is a state calculator and you, it's available to everyone. If you're uh, and on our website, we will uh, uh, share that with you. But what this is looking at is an epidemiological curve. Every disease, infectious disease process goes through this uh, epidemiological curve where you have an upsurge of infections. It may be over a period of days or weeks, months, sometimes even years, but you have this upsurge of infections that occur. And then there is a downturn. And that downturn occurs when your reproductive rate, the rho naught, becomes less than one. So what, what we're seeing is now that we're on this upsurge of infections. There are two lines to really keep an eye on. This is for the state again, and 8,000 is the bed capacity at the state level. What the dotted line is, is where the bed need will be as we begin to see the patients of COVID-19 come into our hospitals. We are in the early part of April. We have plenty of capacity still, but you can see from nearly all the predictive models that there will be a surge of patients and it is likely that it will uh, uh, overburden our existing healthcare system and both our number of beds, number of ICU beds and the ventilators. Um, the exact number for the local area we are still working on as a team of epidemiologists, but this gives you sort of a broad uh, idea of why we're in this predicament. The capacity is at 8,000, the need is nearly at 15,000. And we can see that need come in between two to four, six weeks from now, uh, and we have to prepare. How do we know that this is going to happen? And, and uh, it's because it's happened in other countries and other states. New York is maybe a week ahead of us. Uh, we, we can see uh, what happened in Wuhan as well. Now, I like to sort of summarize it in very simple terms. What will be maybe our needs? Two times the number of hospital beds, three times the number of ventilators, and four times the number of ICU beds. That's potentially what we're looking at. However, that can be prevented. And this is how it can be prevented. You see, the, the, the surge is when uh, the, the, the solid line uh, and solid uh, graph is there. And what you see is uh, a huge uh, acceleration of cases. If we decrease one core element, we can dampen that curve significantly. Yes, it prolongs, but it dampens and allows the healthcare system to manage those who are sick to the best ability that we have. It doesn't overwhelm our healthcare system. And so our goal is dampening. How we can do that is something that has uh, been proven in history. This is uh, from Washington Post, where I uh, may have shared with the, uh, this with you earlier, but Philadelphia and St. Louis in 1918 both uh, did something which was uh, transformative, but they did it at different intervals. 
Philadelphia did social distancing maybe two, two and a half weeks after. Uh, St. Louis did it within three days of their first case. What we know is that's where the difference was. You saw a huge surge, large number of deaths, and what you saw was a lower number of deaths in, in St. Louis, uh, but flattening uh, of the curve. So the single most important factor that determines the surge is the social distancing. The more social distancing we can do, the better in terms of reducing the surge. This is just a calculator. Uh, uh, Unicast.com is a website which shows where we are at Shelby County. Uh, we are not doing a very good job. We're getting a C grade compared to Davidson and other counties because we're only doing maybe about 50, 55% social uh, distancing, and yet we need much more, 60, 65, 70 to uh, make an impact. Uh, there are op options uh, with University of Memphis. Uh, we're preparing an app that can help people alert them on crowding that's occurring, how many encounters that you've had, and also an option for looking at a COVID alert, if there's a COVID patient who is uh, uh, around uh, that you may have had contact to. And this app is under development at present. So where are we in Shelby County? Uh, this gives you a, the graph. Of the many graphs that you see, the single most important graph to take a look at, what is so critical is the number of new cases. That's what you want to take a look at. And what you can see is, yes, we have a little uh, a zigzag, uh, uh, but generally the number of new cases being reported are going up. And how are we working and dealing with, with that uh, is a, uh, a task force uh, function, which I'm gonna uh, describe in, in a bit. Uh, we have a task force uh, and this is the public health and health services section of it. Uh, overarching are the two mayors who sit on the phone call with us every morning, uh, 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Uh, Doug McGowan uh, chairs that uh, session, brings people together, and we'll, we're gonna spend some time talking about that. Uh, there are things that we need to prepare. In the preparation, we've talked about Dr. Sunny and I, uh, had a long conversation. What are the needs, medical, structural, personal, uh, for step down, ICU, real detailed stuff being prepared to think uh, of this as well. Um, as I finish up, there are other models that we're looking at locally, which can mean that yes, we, we may have a, a surge uh, in locally that might be uh, delayed. And those are some, uh, options uh, that could uh, help better understand where we are going to, where we potentially could be. I want to finish up with the following. What could be a potential end game? How could would and how make the COVID-19 epidemic end? First and foremost, we have to be doing social distancing. Second, testing, testing, testing. That's critically important. Third, contact tracing and follow-ups isolation, surveillance, and then vaccine. Uh, there are a number of articles, this is in the Lancet, that talk about 
how contact tracing can make a huge impact. And it has done in places like Singapore and South Korea and how we could utilize that as well. And then there's also uh, a very good uh, uh, paper out of the American Enterprise Institute, which talks about how do we go from where we are to reopening. I'll stop at that and I'm gonna ask uh, Dr. Househalter and Dr. Doug uh, and Mr. Doug McGowan to uh, give us a little bit of more details of what is happening at the city level and the county level for our response and their conversations uh, with uh, key officials as well. And then we'll open up and uh, take questions. Um, Dr. Halsalter, if you will uh, either text me through the chat feature or uh, text my cell phone at 356-7703, that'll help me locate you. Um, Doug McGowan, I'm trying, you should be unmuted now, Mr. McGowan. Ma'am, thank you, Clint. Thank you, Dr. Jane. I'll start and Dr. Householder can fill in. So the question of the day is, how do we respond to the surge that is coming? Uh, just so you all know, I'll give you a little structural background. Uh, we do have a joint task force that is formed. Uh, it is the city and the county, all the municipalities and the surrounding uh, counties are a part of that, as well as all of the agencies health care systems. Uh, we are dealing with a number of things first, uh, blunting the impact of the COVID virus, but also maintaining essential services that everybody relies on. Uh, we have to make sure that the water systems, the sewage treatment plants, all those things continue to operate, that the garbage gets collected. We don't want to trade one pandemic for another pandemic. Uh, <clears throat> the state is in support. They have formed a unified command uh, they have assigned Mr. McWhorter, who is the Finance and Administration Commissioner, to head that up. So they have a team that is working all day, every day, only on this issue. Uh, they have committed to support us locally. Uh, you saw the first expression of that support yesterday when it was announced that we selected a location for an alternative care facility, uh, and that would be at the Gateway Shopping Center on Jackson Avenue. Um, I will tell you that uh, I had a phone call today with our CEOs at all of the four major uh, medical uh, systems here in the Memphis area. Uh, we discussed very specifically what that might mean for us. Uh, so at a high level, all of you know, if you looked at that curve, uh, that we know approximately the number of beds that we have. We know the approximate need. Uh, we do not know exactly when the surge will arrive, but we do need to prepare. The CEOs are all aligned that we must work together in order to tackle this epidemic. Uh, and so there was broad cooperation on the phone today and we agree on a number of things. First, that we all need to accurately report our census every day, the number of beds that we have staffed and we are all doing that. Second, by Monday they will all, and they're working on this right now, some of you may be working on that, to give us what would be their stretch capacity. In other words, if we were to open every uh, wing and every floor of every hospital that is mothballed, uh, and with the staff that we have available, what would that look like and what are the number of beds that we would have? The third number would be, uh, how many physical beds could we pack into every healthcare facility that we have, uh, irrespective of staffing? And then we would pull some outside staff in. So that will give us a baseline of exactly how many beds we would have to treat patients in our healthcare facilities, the largest ones. Uh, the state would then help us respond to that by understanding how many uh, of a uh, 
alternate care facility we might be able to have to build here in the city of Memphis. Today we have one secured, we could do up to three of those. Uh, but I will tell you there is a, a discussion that has not yet been determined. Uh, there are two models for how we do this. First, a common alternative patient care facility of up to a thousand beds. It would be a common site for low acuity COVID-19 patients all to go. Uh, it would be staffed with a mix of staff that are both recruited, retired, and uh, some folks who are just volunteering to staff that from across all of the medical systems. The other option is to expand capacity at each one of our medical uh, facilities through some kind of a build out, you know, whether it's on adjacent land or in a parking lot. That has not yet been determined uh, and the state will help us in any regard build that out. Uh, everybody does agree that the model for overflow and there will be an overflow when the surge comes is to put COVID-19 low acuity patients into an alternative care setting because they will, that is one kind of care and it will be the least demand on our overall system. Uh, and, it, and it gives us the ability to have uh, the most effective uh, staffing to patient ratio in that kind of a model. Uh, we certainly do not have all of the answers, uh, but the CEOs are all earnest and they have said that their staffs will uh, come back to us with a report on exactly what their capacities are. We will all work together to find a common model that works. I fully understand that everybody has a different electronic medical record. Everybody has a different pharma, uh, pharmacy model. Uh, we are gonna have to work through those things and we are committed to do so. Uh, by Monday, I expect to have some answers. Uh, we will put together a team uh, that will be led uh, by one individual from all of the major healthcare systems who will add capacity uh, to our task force. We have on our task force individuals who are charged with looking at the staffing for something like this surge. We're looking at the facilities in this surge, uh, but we will add capacity to that with a representative from each one of the major healthcare systems so that we can very quickly determine how we will put this thing into place on the ground here in Memphis, Tennessee. Just want you to know that we do have a deliberate approach to that. Uh, the state is earnestly looking for feedback from us on how they can assist us, uh, both in terms of recruiting and paying for additional staffing and, built, and physical build out. So I'll stop there and see if Dr. Householder wants to add anything additional. I think uh, I got word from her via the chat function. She's uh, lost her voice, so she's, she's deferring to you. Um, yes. Okay, so I'll... I'll stop there. I just wanted to give you a sense that that is the direction that we are going. We certainly do not have all the answers, but we are working to get that very quickly for you. Great. Th thanks, Doug. And I, I want to let everyone know I, I cannot thank uh, enough what a great job Doug and the team has been doing and both the mayors. I, I am on the phone uh, with them uh, and texting at least half a uh, dozen times a day or more. Uh, and they are getting a real uh, clear uh, input from the doctors. Uh, Dr. Jeff Warren uh, has been also been part of the team in having conversations with us. And I would say to all of you and to pass this message on to others, if you feel that things are not going as well as they could or there are ways that we could do better, given the circumstance that we're in, uh, please do let us know. Uh, we have a voice with the administrations of the hospitals, the clinics. We try to move things in various ways. Uh, we did that for the face mask for healthcare workers. 
as well as for masking in the general public. Uh, we had those initiatives out uh, a week before the national level uh, initiatives have come out. And then we will, again, take proactive action as needed. Uh, what we need to do is to have you communicate with us and the Medical Society is uh, a fabulous channel. Uh, Dr. Joe Hawley, Dr. Sunny Golden, uh, Tabor Owens are, are also there to uh, beat the channels to get information across. So Clint, with that, I'll uh, have folks uh, ask questions. And I do wanna uh, sort of focus in uh, to keep this more a public health uh, conversation rather than a more clinical perspective conversation. We can have a clinical conversation uh, at another times as well in management in more detail, but those are long conversations we can also have. Well, um, as you can imagine, Dr. Jane, with the um, news today, uh, got a couple of questions about masks. Yes, um, sure. I can, yeah. I, I, it seems like maybe folks are looking for more specifics about, you know, if I'm playing outside in the yard, do I need a mask uh, as okay. opposed to the grocery store? Yeah, so uh, I'll tell you a little bit of a back history on the masks and, and where uh, the evidence is and where the CDC has been and WHO. As you well know, the CDC never uh, wanted to uh, and never said that masks are a good idea in, for the general population, at least in the United States. The WHO had the same recommendation. Uh, in part, it was due to the lack of availability of masks uh, in such massive scale for the general population and also the lack of evidence. However, there was a, I, I'm sure, a huge push from the public. Also, there was push from what we saw was happening in South Korea, Singapore, uh, and, and, and China, where the population in and Hong Kong, where the population generally wears a mask. Putting all of that together, and knowing that this disease is transmitted, the COVID-19 is transmitted asymptomatically, all of that came to a head where today, in fact today, CDC said that wearing a mask, cloth mask even, uh, would be fine. Uh, Jeff Warren has, has been a big advocate of that in our community and has, has uh, talked about that uh, as well. And I have been in, in agreement even though have been reluctant because the evidence uh, hasn't been there. But given that so often we may not have all the uh, evidence to uh, make a decision based on this uh, situation, I think it is best that we wear a mask when we are in public areas. If you're out in the park and other states uh, where you're plenty far, far away from others, I don't think there's a real need for masks at that time. Uh, can, I just, can I just add one thing? Sorry. Yes, Doug. Yes, please. Miguel, the mayor will put guidance out today. If you leave your house, cover your face. If you're at work, cover your face. Surgical masks are the best, but if, since there are not, those are not plentiful available, uh, we would ask everybody to use a cloth mask or another non-medical device to cover their face. <clears throat> it's all about trying to drive compliance with the safer at home order. It's about getting people's attention and understanding uh, what the real risks are. Uh, I, I will tell you that I just hear from a number of people in the press and the media, they wanna know if we'll shut the borders off to the city or we'll shut the airport. Uh, this is all about driving the message that this is Memphians giving this disease to Memphians. It's not some outside influence that's coming to give us this disease. So 
Now that's going to be the mayor's direction to the public. Great. Uh, thank you, Doug. Um, the next question, uh, Dr. Jane, are dentists part of the public health plan? Uh, so dentists are certainly a part of the public health plan in terms of uh, being very cautious in their practices and being uh, and uh, uh, providing awareness to patients and so forth. In terms of who we are going to need in terms of specialties, uh, that's a question that we've been working on together. And the question is going to be, uh, at one end, we're going to need uh, specialists uh, for respiratory uh, 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 management. So pulmonologists, anesthesiologists, surgeons for doing trachs as well. Uh, we're going to need a good number of those providers. Uh, the other providers we are thinking can be on electronic medical record where they don't have to be actively uh, in the uh, patient rooms and we are, we are able to manage this uh, state has all, uh, allowed us to use Skype or other technologies to make decisions within electronic medical record and that uh, there are ways that that can be very helpful. Now there are uh, other ways that, that we, we are going to need help and that's going to be from the nursing uh, and respiratory therapist. Uh, so each one uh, uh, individual has a role to play. Uh, dentists and other specialists, there, there is a need for uh, management of resources and knowledge awareness within the community. We do not want panic uh, to spread in the community when the beds fill up and there is a line to get into the emergency room and outside the hospital, it looks uh, like that things are not going well uh, because there is a lot of patients uh, there. Uh, the situation that we're seeing in New York, we want to avoid that here. And so that knowledge information you can uh, disseminate. Um, the question is, given the backlog of elective and semi-elective surgical cases, is there any public health planning going on for priorities and resource allocation towards those things? So uh, that's a good question in terms of priorities and resource allocation. In all honesty, right now, the, what's happened is the census at the hospital has gone down uh, and the cases of uh, COVID-19 have gone up significantly. Uh, maybe we might be seeing over 70 uh, cases uh, uh, who are COVID positive known in the hospital in that range. Uh, PUIs, persons of interest, are uh, maybe twice that. Half of those patients who are admitted are in the ICU. So we're seeing the hospitals become filled with COVID positive patients. There will be a, a priority uh, for those individuals uh, with uh, obviously surgical needs, uh, cath needs and so forth. However, right now, we want to be able to cater to the needs of filling those beds with the COVID positive patients who, who, and the ICU beds as well. Uh, after the surge is over, which we know it will be over, uh, we will be able to allocate uh, the priority step-by-step step as needed for the elective procedures. 
We haven't made those decisions yet, as you can imagine. Each individual hospital is going to have to make those decisions, but that will take time. Right now, it's really preparing all hands on deck for a potential surge that doesn't uh, incapacitate the hospitals. What, um, what geography do our surge estimates encompass? We're at being asked, you know, does it include northern Mississippi and east, eastern Arkansas? Can you clarify? Yes, good, good question. And we're looking at the uh, greater Memphis area. So the Baptist hospital systems includes uh, Baptist Memphis, DeSoto, uh, West Memphis, uh, uh, Collierville, uh, and certainly Methodist includes Olive Branch and all of the Methodist hospitals here as well. So what we're talking about is a greater Memphis, a population of about 1.4 million. Metro Memphis area is what we're looking at. Um, could you uh, kind of restate, I don't know that we talked much about testing on the call in terms of uh, how and where to get one. Um, is there any change in that process given the surge in our cases? So the answer to that is there's no change. In fact, there's a change for uh, testing more people. And if Dr. Joe Holly's also on the call, he, he can uh, tell us a little bit about what he's been doing with his uh, uh, staff. So the, in terms of testing, it's best to think of it in the following way. First and foremost, we want to test those who are symptomatic with ILI, influenza-like illness. You want to test them first. Why? Because 10% of those will, become, will be uh, COVID positive. That's the general trend that we're seeing. 10% of ILI, influenza-like illness. We're about testing about 500 to 700 of those every day. And that's why you're seeing the numbers 50 to 60 numbers. However, we need to begin to expand testing. And what I mean by expanding is to go to those other high risk individuals. So those are EMTs, first responders, ED doctors, uh, infectious disease, pulmonary doctors, hospitalists. We begin to expand the nurses who are in those units. We begin to expand the, all of the EMTs, the police, the fire. When you begin to do that, this is what South Korea did. This is what Singapore did. What we will, are, the preliminary data is showing is that 1% of that population is positive. Now, the fear is if you let that 1% not catch them early enough, then they can infect a, another uh, 1 to 2, 3% within their own cohorts, other doctors, or the patients as well. So the strategy is, First, go after the influenza-like illness, then go after those who are in high-risk areas and high-risk professions, and then we can look at sentinel surveillance. Uh, for example, at a nursing home, we need to be proactive and go at the nursing homes and take, make sure that those healthcare workers uh, who are there are being tested actually they're not getting the infection from the hospital. They're likely getting infection from the community and then bringing it into the hospital and spreading it. So we just have to be very aware of those strategies. The hospitals uh, and the testing centers are well aware of this and they're ramping up. And uh, AEL, one of the labs and other labs are building capacity so that we don't, are not doing just in hundreds the testing, 
every day, but we try to achieve in the thousands. So uh, speaking of ramping up, there's, you know, been some discussion about, you know, where do private practices and when, I guess, also do private practices fit into the plan? I know I've, I've fielded a few calls about that myself. Um, can you shed any light on that? So it's going to also depend on the test kits and you know as, as well that, that there is going to different test kits, serological testing, 15-minute uh, test, uh, point-of-care test. Uh, we are not. We have not received any of those kits, uh, but we hope that we do. And within a week, the landscape may change, and then we will talk about getting testing done within the uh, office setting and so forth. Now, with all of this comes a problem, and as providers, this is what you need to be aware of: the sensitivity and specificity may vary. We don't know the exact numbers. But that's a concern. Even when we have the PCR test, the concern is that when we do a nasopharyngeal swab, so as a clinician, I'll just tell you, and uh, with Dr. Tselkel, Dr. Omer, Dr. Pokerna, who are other colleagues, we've had this conversation texting back and forth on this, is that there may be a 70% sensitivity with the PCR even. Uh, there was a JAMA research letter that talked about that. We don't know much on those, uh, in those areas. However, what we have seen clinically is that initially the test is negative and then they're still having symptoms that are very COVID-like symptoms and we test them again and it can be negative or then maybe a third time, then it turns positive. Is it turning positive because they were close to not having very many symptoms before or is it because there was a false positive uh, earlier? a false negative earlier. We do not know the details of that. So what I suggest, what we're suggesting our, as co ID colleagues, infectious disease colleagues is keep that in mind. If someone does test negative and you're suspecting COVID as well, test them again, keep them in isolation uh, and you don't have to have them all maximum uh, barrier uh, isolation, at least mask at both levels, at the provider level and at the patient level. Uh, Dr. Holly, I think you're unmuted. Is there anything you wanted to add? Let uh, Dr. Jane take a breath. <laughs> well, well, thanks, Manoj. You've been covering it uh, beautifully. And I, I think as you uh, addressed things earlier, uh, we're working very hard in the pre-hospital world uh, to try to protect our uh, EMTs and paramedics. Uh, the challenge, I think, for us in many cases is uh, an increasing uh, volume and a broader presentation that is uh, more and more difficult to ascertain um, with any degree of certainty the likelihood that we're uh, taking care of a COVID positive patient. So uh, we're encouraging our pre-hospital providers to utilize uh, aggressive PPE as they care for patients to limit uh, nebulizer aerosol producing procedures um, to um, attempt to uh, protect themselves and their ambulance from uh, potential contamination. Uh, and as Doge mentioned earlier, we're also doing some uh, screening of uh, that group of responders just to get a sense of what the um, uh, asymptomatic positivity rate might be in that group. Great. Thanks, uh, Joe. And I'm going to ask Doug to make a few comments about, we've got over 160 people on the call. 
uh, on the PPE uh, and what the city and the county and the task force is doing. Uh, I, I don't think many people know, Doug, maybe do you want to mention a few of the things that, that we're uh, doing on the PPE front? Well, I guess I would say that we do have a logistics uh, team that that's all they're focused on is getting PPE. <clears throat> we understand that uh, given the CDC's guidance change, uh, we originally uh, were going strong on N95s and now we're down to surgical masks. Largely that's for our first responders uh, and leaving the N95s <clears throat> for the folks who need it in the hospital environment. So uh, what we're doing on the task force is we're really the gap fillers. We're paying attention to all the medical providers and uh, having them express their PPE needs in terms of days and weeks. Uh, and so we'll be uh, kind of that gap filler for anybody who, who reaches a critical shortfall. Uh, we have, I know uh, sounds like a lot, but it's probably not. Uh, we have two and a half million surgical masks en route to Memphis now. Uh, we have uh, some hundreds of thousands of N95 masks that are on order and en route to Memphis at this point. And so we're uh, kind of the central clearinghouse. We expect all the agencies to use their own logistics train, but when somebody gets in a hard spot, we're gonna be kind of the backstop. So uh, we are paying attention to what everybody's needs are. And that's not just for masks, but also for uh, kind of the gowns and the, and the face shields, the goggles, the uh, Tyvek suits, the uh, whatever it happens to be in, in the gloves. So uh, we're pay paying attention to everybody's needs. We also have a clinic coalition uh, who is uh, working on paying attention to those needs. And I think uh, finally, the, the last thing we're doing is uh, there are a lot of what I would consider spurious uh, requests coming in that could dilute uh, the impact of logistics for some people who actually need it. So we're being a, a, a central clearinghouse for some of those requests that I would suggest are a little less um, urgent than the requests we have on the front lines. So I, I, with that, I, I just want, I want to make sure that people understand that there's a lot of stuff happening in the background. And just because you're not able to see it in the day-to-day -day doesn't mean that it's not happening. And, and not to have a cynical view of, of, you know, no one's paying attention to this, uh, but, but people are working uh, to, to meet those needs and demands. And again, we're very open to your questions, very open to your requests and ideas of ways that we can uh, meet our PPE demand uh, and need as well as our staffing. And that's where I want to take a minute and ask you to think about how you can offer your service uh, through the medical society. That's where we're using as a clearinghouse to bring people together. Uh, see how maybe a few of your colleagues could also volunteer and help. Uh, these are ways that it's a difficult time. We're looking at not a couple of days. We're not looking at a couple of years, uh, maybe weeks. Uh, think about two to four weeks uh, that we will be in a very uh, critical crisis situation where those who are on the front lines are going to need help, uh, even take a breather from what's going on. And with your knowledge and expertise in nursing, as well as in uh, healthcare as a physician, you can provide that in looking over patient charts that will do the simple stuff that in decision-making that, that can be done. Um, so you don't need to be a ID doctor or a, 
critical care doctor to manage a lot of stuff that, that will be required as well. Uh, and you can do a lot of it from home as well. So we're opening those avenues up because we do need skilled personnel uh, at the time of crisis to, to be able to provide guidance to those who are on the field or to nursing personnel who uh, may, may be also not uh, completely skilled, maybe nursing students who are coming and doing stuff. So um, there's a lot of good resources. Dr. Holly has put several links uh, in the chat function uh, if you have a chance to look at those. Um, another note that we put in the chat, uh, this uh, presentation is actually accredited for CME. We were able to put that together uh, in short order uh, for everyone. I will um, put that link uh, sure. into the feature once again. Uh, so it's now there at the bottom. Um, one, one really good question that came in, Dr. Jane, um, uh, in the hospital setting, there's a comment that it's either difficult or it's just not being observed, the social dis distancing element amongst the staff in the hospital. Any, any guidance you can give for folks on that? So I think one, wear a mask in the hospital setting. I think it's really important for people to do that. Uh, second, when I talk, to people, I, uh, I keep three hand lengths away from them. So imagine you've stretched your hand, they've stretched your hand, there's a one hand in between, that's six feet. Uh, I had, I've been in the hospital multiple times. It's an uncomfortable conversation. You can't have private conversations on it, but that's the way we, we, we're going to have to function for this period of time. Uh, so uh, encourage people, it's a new habit, new behavior that we have to do. Uh, I wanted to change the topic, Clint, just for one uh, bit and, and talk about something which is of concern to many uh, of us as providers, and that's the uh, medical malpractice issue that can potentially come up. And what I will say to you is that uh, Maryland has a statue, uh, and, and I'll just read this. Uh, from the New York Times, and this was in, from a JAMA article, and uh, is a Maryland statute makes healthcare providers, quote unquote, immune from civil or criminal liability for actions they take in good faith during a declared catastrophic health emergency. Uh, and according uh, to the Maryland Attorney General's office, they are working on that. What I would suggest is that we work on a similar uh, statue for our state, which we will need uh, support from all of you as well. I am supportive of putting something together. I'll, uh, I'll be talking with the mayors and emailing them an idea similar to this, uh, but uh, that will help many of the doctors allay their fears that sometimes they have to make decisions that may not be the uh, best decisions possible and that they should not be uh, have fear of a malpractice suit. And uh, I can add to that the uh, Tennessee Medical Association is um, uh, running that up the flagpole of the governor as we speak so we're we're hoping for some um, responsiveness on that but um, I'm sure the yeah. mayors could even add uh, more to that. Um, but we need the providers we've got 150 plus folks on the call uh, your email and your support will make a huge difference. Correct. Um, 
One of the other questions that came in was pretty specific to Regional 1, and I think we have Martin Kroos on the call, so I, if you want to defer to him, that's fine. Let me uh, get back to the question. Um, while I'm looking for it, there were a couple other thoughts put in, and I think they were part question, part suggestion around dental offices and hotel rooms um, housing patients. Um, I don't know so if y'all talked about good, that. Yeah, so yes, we have talked about hotel rooms housing patients. Uh, we've looked at surgery centers, uh, potential dental offices, uh, those outpatient areas. Now, the problem comes in, obviously, is that which hospital system will absorb them and putting a, a set of patients only if you have four or five beds may not be sufficient. You want to be able to maximize the volume because logistics will be a, a big problem. This come Monday, the team will be working uh, and, uh, and looking at a lot of these logistic issues. So uh, do communicate those to us and then we'll see and let you know as best uh, what those approaches are to manage patients and where physically, think of it the physical, think also the staffing, and then obviously the medical equipment is being worked on. Uh, so the regional one question was around, um, is there any planning for diversion for regional one as a trauma safety net hospital and the effect that COVID patients taking up those ICU beds would have on trauma patients that need those beds? So I, I can begin to answer that if someone else is, is there that they can address it. Uh, I, I had a, a long conversation previously with Dr. Coopwood and also uh, uh, with Martin about this, uh, we are going to be very aware. We're very aware and very thoughtful about uh, maintaining the services that uh, are needed, such as trauma, uh, burn, and others, and to save those beds for those needs uh, that's possible. So uh, yes, we will be thinking uh, uh, very actively about maintaining those services for the city. Uh, Dr. Kroos, you're unmuted if you want to add to that. No, I don't really have anything else to add. I appreciate uh, the understanding of the unique services that are provided at Regional One. Uh, and, and uh, you know, unfortunately, people, the, the, there will still be significant trauma and, and other high-risk behavior. Uh, that occurred during this time that we're getting this influx of uh, COVID-19 patients. So I, I appreciate everyone's understanding about that because it's it's pretty critical to the region. Thank you. So um, another question, are pediatric ICU beds part of the need uh, for surge to be used for adults? I guess what they're asking, will pediatric ICU beds be used for adults? So that's a question the hospitals are going to answer by Monday, uh, which is going to be how much can they expand, right? So one is going to be with the existing, uh, how much do you have? What can you do? Uh, and then what towers can you open? What other regions of the hospital can be opened for uh, COVID-19 patients or at least for uh, other patients as well. And all of that will be taken into the calculation uh, for, the, for the Monday. 
And so that's the first level expansion. And then the, obviously the next level is uh, building tents, off-site hospitals, so forth. Um, next one was around any special considerations or implications for mental health patients or mental health professionals. Yes, we're going to need them. Uh, we honestly have not put together uh, that uh, plan for how we're going to use uh, the mental health uh, folks, uh, but certainly that's uh, going to be an, uh, an area we have to look at. Uh, we, are, we are now just uh, focusing on the physical, the staffing, and then certainly we, we have to work on the psychological as well. Um, a couple more housekeeping notes uh, as I'm trying to go through the questions. Um, we will be sending out a form uh, after this call to, to begin soliciting those who are interested in volunteering um, uh, to take care of folks uh, during this. Uh, that'll be coming out from us um, after the call. Uh, a follow-up note on uh, Mr. McGowan's uh, PPE comments. Uh, the Medical Society is also working on that. Uh, not only working in partnership with the city, but even uh, coming up with um, some other creative sources um, to get those supplies to the right people. And uh, uh, we will be uh, putting out a, an order form um, as soon as it's ready to go, hopefully um, early next week. And uh, once again, I'll mention the CME form or the CME link um, is in the Zoom uh, group chat uh, function. Um, looks like Dr. Holly's okay. doing a great job of backing you up and answering some of these. Oh, questions. he's doing it on that. Okay, great. And that's oh, that. we're we're over at the hour. I don't want to take a lot of people's time, uh, but maybe finish off and and so go to get a sense if th these conversations are useful. Uh, we're more than happy to do. Uh, them uh, frequently once a week as needed and and just let us know of of what your thoughts are uh, I can I, I will say this that uh, the next set of conversations uh, obviously the surge will be there but it's going to be how do we reopen right there is a very systematic way that we reopen the city uh, and then at that time I'll, I'll sort of uh, discuss uh, what are the strategies, what has worked in other countries, what will we, we be having to be mindful of, and and so that that's the next uh, conversation. If if not a few weeks down the line, but uh, maybe uh, uh, somewhere down the line, we'll be having that conversation as well. And there was a good question to end on that Dr. Holly did answer, but I think it's a, a good one again to mention. Um, are we still working on additional community testing sites? And, and the answer is yes. Uh, like I've said before, uh, we've got to be doing more and more testing. Uh, and what I would really encourage you to do as, as providers is to encourage your institutions, figure out the barriers. I think, D Doug, you've had conversations with the insurance companies um, I don't know if you want to mention a few of the, the conversations that they're allowing the testing at no cost uh, uh, and the institutions are building that up. 
the way we get at this virus, right? The, the strategy is, is very simple. We know that it, it works uh, if we are able to contain it. So, so we work on the testing, we work on isolation, and, and we work on uh, the, at the beginning of everything is social distancing, and then the surveillance and the vaccine is what we're hoping will then allow uh, the virus to not become a major menace and disruption in our lives that it has been. So um, I don't mean to keep peppering you, Dr. Jane, but some of these seem really good. Um, yeah. There's a couple of comments around an inconsistency in the swabbing technique. And it, um, it looks like there may be a call for us to put out maybe some okay. consistent information about how to do that. That's, yeah, I've heard sure. that personally from someone who was tested, um, and I think yeah. it's, uh, it's even put so, our providers. So, so, so remember, I, I had talked earlier about our sensitivity for the test, for the PCR not being good enough, uh, or as much as we would like to see it at times, and that can have that can be due to the technique. So, what I would do is uh, I'll make a note of that. We will talk to uh, folks. Uh, from uh, uh, from Church Health Center, uh, Jenny Bartlett Prescott is leading the testing effort for the community, and we'll get that message out to her, and we'll also get that message out to the hospitals to let them know that there is proper training for the testing. All right, I'm putting the CME link in one more time so people can grab that before we. Um, in the discussion, and I, I will say this for those if we didn't get to your question, I'm going to cut and paste all these questions and, and we'll either add them to the FAQ on our website or we'll try to address them um, on a future call. And uh, thanks, Dr. Holly, for working behind the scenes to get a lot of the questions answered um, through chat. And here comes the CME link one more time. Dr. Jane, thank you. Doug McGowan, thank you. Uh, Dr. Holly, thank you. Um, and everybody for joining us, thank you. Um, I'll keep the call live just for a little longer so people can uh, grab any links that they wanna grab um, and then we'll adjourn appropriately. But um, uh, that's Great. it and uh, we'll be in touch soon with another call. Great, and Clint, just uh, we'll make the PowerPoint available to folks so they can, they can use it and share it. And there are links to the website uh, that there are lots of references that I've, I've talked about as well as the social app. Uh, if you have an Android phone at present, you'll be able to use that as well. So uh, please spread the message. Let people know that there is an organized effort. Be part of the effort. And if you're not understanding what's happening or why things are going the way, please ask uh, at the Medical Society. There's an entire structure that can be helpful. At myself, I'm available, as well as the other physicians in the leadership team, Dr. Holly, Dr. Golden, uh, Dr. Tabor um, are available as well. So th thank you so much for taking the evening and learning what the city, the county are doing at this very, very difficult time. And um, I hope you're all safe. And uh, I'm being texted about things that I'm forgetting. I apologize. So the, uh, the CARES Act is another thing that physicians have been asking us about. We put um, another concise guide on our website. So you, you all can go to mdmemphis.org. Uh, we've got um, our 
the most consolidated information we can uh, put out there around the CARES Act. Uh, and then of course, all of our other COVID materials um, are there as well. So um, you all can uh, go there and get that. All right. Okay. Thanks again, Good Dr. Payne. Good night. You've been listening to the Memphis MedCast, a podcast series from Memphis Medical Society. Subscribe to our podcast anywhere you enjoy listening to podcasts or mdmemphis.org.